You understand the meaning of the word foreboding. As in badness is happening right now. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Far too kind. Boy, you guys are a hell of a duet here. Why'd you start harmonizing? Can I get an encore? Do you want more? Cook and roll with the Brooklyn boys. So for one last time, I need you. Because lobsters live for over 100 years. Now what the hell are you waiting for? me, there should be no more. So for one last time, make some noise. That's for John Lennon, you Yankee fucking cunt. Welcome to Tigerland. This will be your final week of training before you are shipped overseas. Maybe some of you have heard that we've lost this war. Well, gentlemen, it's too damn late to ask those questions. All that matters now is that you practice how to stay alive. Private Boz is now demonstrating the proper way to dig a hole under fire. Under fire, you will dig a hole and you will dig it with your teeth if you have to. Do it! Eat dirt! You wear a dress, Sergeant! <laughs> they came down pretty hard and you're back in company. I'm surprised they let you off base. I didn't. Well, you're AWOL? I have the children. <laughs> Been in the army more than three months. Most of it in the stockade. Let me give you some army buddy advice. Figure out a way to get out. Boz, you're playing a fool who's fighting the system. Hello, and welcome to a still untitled podcast about what the career of Colin Farrell can tell us about the changing state of the 21st century movie star and what the 21st century movie star can tell us about Colin Farrell. My name is Cole. I'm Connor. Uh, Connor, I do think you said you might have a name idea that I might, might yeah, like or I was, might not like. I was wondering, you know, I don't hate the idea of Untitled, but I think it might be a little, um, might rub feathers the wrong way. Not not in like any political way or anything like that. I was wondering what you thought of the, of the title above the title. Ooh, cute, right? I like mm. it. Meta. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, you could marinate on that for. I'll mar I'll marinate on it. If I marinate in the wrong way, we're cutting this bit out so I don't <laughs> embarrass you uh, to our tens of listeners. I'll go but for I, it. Embarrassing. I, I don't. I don't. Yeah, it's interesting. That's good. Anyway, hello, welcome to maybe above the title, maybe not. Uh, today we are going to be discussing the two thousand and film. 2000 film, 2000 and film, blah, 2000 film Tigerland, directed by Joel Schumacher. Uh, Colin's first starring role, it yeah, premiered. Maybe. Yeah, it premiered at the one. 2000 Toronto International Film Festival uh, and then opened a month later in October of 2000 to absolute crickets. Connor, I don't know if you looked at this movie's box office, but we will mm. get into it. <laughs> uh, that's wild. That's something that I... I was like, is this wrong when I was looking at the Wikipedia page originally? <laughs> Are we off by like, I don't know, three digits? <laughs> I mean, do you, would you want to get into it now or do you want to save it for later? I mean, we can get into it now because I, I don't know if there's that much to be said about it. But I guess like, I think it's odd how much the general public knows about the narrative of Colin Farrell's career, despite... Well, I don't know if it's despite. He's a huge movie star, but I don't think he's existed in the public consciousness the same way as like we think of our other major, major celebrities. And I know I sometimes, especially in the last like 15, 20 years, recently 
far beyond anything else, our, our musical artists are way bigger than our, our screen artists tend to be. But I think even then it's, I find it interesting that the public consciousness of Colin Farrell's career seems to be so strong. I think there's like a general narrative that like most film fans, most movie fans like understand about Colin Farrell that his first big break was Tigerland. He essentially like starred in blockbusters nonstop afterwards for like four or five years, then had a, you know, not a public bout with drug addiction, but about with drug addiction that the public is knowledgeable of not stuff that happened like in the limelight necessarily but stuff that the public acknowledges being there or has an awareness of he doesn't have any like public meltdowns like some other i think famous celebrities of the time who are struggling with addiction do but he does like very publicly go to rehab um there's no moment where for example, there's no moment where like a leaked voicemail that he sends braiding somebody comes out. There's no uh, getting pulled over on the highway saying anti-Semitic yes. slurs. There's no yes. being there's no like paparazzi footage of him like hitting cars with a baseball bat. There's n- nothing like that is going on. Yeah. I think it's interesting. He's if if you watch any interview with him on like late night television, he's such an open speaker about himself that it's it almost seems like that's in the manner that all this has reached the public light that he's willing to talk about these issues that he's had he's willing to talk about the kind of the frivolous things that he does on his on a day-to-day basis Um, yeah it's it's interesting given someone who you know his his struggles with addiction are so well known and also someone who was such like a womanizer and that's maybe even the wrong term but someone who so famously was attached and dated so many you know, celebrities during this like early 2000s window. And maybe I'm mistaken, but you don't hear bad stories about Colin Farrell. Like even when he's in the throes of addiction, like he seems to have been like kind of a nice person. There is the story about the stalker, which I'll get, we'll get to later because I want to do a little more digging into that. But that looks like someone who maybe was a little mentally unwell and was accusing him of stuff he didn't do. But even on like, again, I'm going to bring up Miami Vice, a shoot like Miami Vice, uh, which is where he's really in the depths of his addiction. He's not the person who's ruining <laughs> the shoot of Miami Vice. He is, by all accounts, very chill on the set of Miami Vice. It's Fox who kind of fucks things up for right or for wrong. You know, we'll get into it. Yeah, um, yeah I think, you know, to put it simply, there's no stories of him burning any bridges despite these public issues that he's had. Yeah. Um, but to say that, like, there does seem to be the strong narrative of the Colin Farrell career and it starts with Tigerland. And I think anybody who knows anything about Colin Farrell knows that his first movie was Tigerland or his first big movie was Tigerland yet. It made no money and nobody saw it. Yeah, (laughs) but, but, but to kind of double up to that, I, I had never seen this movie before this. I knew this was his first big leading role and I knew just looking at the run of movies he has following this, it's movies that he is headlining and then movies where he's the number two on the call sheet, but he's the number two on the call sheet to Bruce Willis and Tom Cruise. Yeah. And like playing supporting roles to Bruce Willis and Tom Cruise this early in your career is not a sign that things are going poorly for you. It's a sign that you're kind of hanging on that level. And so I had assumed these movies were hits, but I mean, the movies we're going to talk about in the next couple of weeks. A are also not hits, but we've been dancing around it. So let's just get into this. 
IMDb says this movie cost about $10 million, which strikes me as what I would think of about a movie of this scale in the year 2000. It made $140,000 at the domestic box office. But I, I, I should say, because I've got the weekly numbers pulled up for it here, opened in October 6, runs until the end of the year, end of 2000. It opens in five theaters, which is, you know, what you want to do for a movie of this size and scale that you're probably positioning as an Oscar contender. You know, open in New York and L.A., get the buzz going. It only does about five to eight thousand dollars per theater that first week, which is not great for a movie of this size. And as far as I can tell, 20th Century Fox just lets it die on the vine once it opens poorly because it never plays in more than five theaters. It's entire two month run. So we do say this movie fucking flop and it did $140,000 on a $10 million it's budget is, is calamity. Could be for, for someone who is less of like an institutional figure than, uh, Joel Schumacher and for someone who is less of like a pretty white boy like Colin Farrell this could be like a career ending flop yeah but um, it's still like but Joel, no one got the Joel Schumacher up until this point has only made like crowd-pleasing blockbuster movies essentially I mean, even like the yeah. Christian novel adaptations like for all the seriousness Huge. that yeah but even what I'm saying is for all the seriousness that um, you know, a time to kill entails with its story of race and things like that. It's still a crowd pleasing blockbuster at the end of the day. You can't get around that. kind of evil. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, crowd pleasing for the crowd yeah. that might have gotten us into this mess that we're in in the current day. But getting around that, like, I I don't I don't understand necessarily how this career launches from this movie. It seems like any other young actor who would have had a starring flop as big as this would have just been immediately cast back off to Ireland, not accepted um, by Hollywood. So I would, I would wager that, you know, they're already a little pot committed with Colin Farrell as a, as a personality um, because he, I am pulling this up. I know he is already shooting American outlaws when this comes out um yes that is true because uh, i was watching an interview yeah. with him with uh television three which is an irish um you know network uh from before tigerland actually premiered he was done filming tigerland he had come back to ireland that's why they were interviewing him they were asking him about like when they could see the movie and things like that and during the interview he says it's crazy i just got an offer to another american movie called american outlaws i'm gonna play jesse james and um one, it's a little striking just <laughs> how he just seems amazed that he has success all of a sudden in America. Um, he's very young. He's like 24 years old. It comes yeah, out he's of nowhere. Five <laughs> yeah. when, he, when, he, when this comes out. He's 25. And up to that point, he had only been acting for really like five years. Yeah. He was not like a child actor. He or he did not grow up in the theater um, or things of that nature. He he says he he had gone to theater school for about six months and then like immediately was taking jobs whether it be like on the stage or on the screen he he just jumped into work and and i mean can't be denied by today's standards that he's one of our <laughs> greater actors it's just almost everything about his career is an enigma <laughs> when you're looking at it so, in some instance 
to just answer your question about was like why why wasn't this a career killer for him i do think that like you know when you're that young and that good looking as colin farrell was in this age people are going to give you people are going to want to give you second chances because there i feel like there is going to be the sense that like someone that handsome should pop i am also yes. going to say that six months after this movie comes out and absolutely craters and i do want to stress that this movie bombs because people don't aren't given a chance to see it like at the end of the day if you never play your movie at more than five screens you can't complain that it bombs and maybe that doesn't stick to him then because it's a known fact that like it just it just died immediately reviews are also very good for this movie mm -hmm. uh, and he gets good reviews Six months after this movie comes out, they start shooting Minority Report. And we'll get into Minority Report, but certainly if there's anyone in Hollywood who's going to dig their heels into the ground and stick by the casting decisions they've made. It's Spielberg and Cruz. Uh, those two guys are not going to like let anyone tell them no. Um, we've gotten into the weeds on this one, though. Do you want to hit us with a plot description, Connor? I was going to ask. Um, yeah. So I I'm going to try and make this as speedy as I possibly can. It's a a movie that doesn't necessarily involve a lot of plot. Um, Farrell plays a draftee to the Vietnam War named Boz, I guess Private Boz, um, although they seem to refer to him as Boss, which, <laughs> you know, you can take that any way you want during the film. Um, the film takes place in 1971. So by this point, the war, the tides of the war are already pretty clear. And um, what, what I find interesting is that a lot of these soldiers are entering boot camp with the idea that they're going off to a losing war. They're going off to the place that they're going to die. Um, there's not a lot of camaraderie around the idea of going to protect democracy. That entire sentiment seems to be lost by this point. Um, early on, Boz meets uh, Matthew Davis's character, who is Private Paxson. And Private Paxson um, enlisted... <laughs> you know, he, he volunteered to enlist. Uh, he's a writer and he believes that serving in the war is going to, you know, fuel him with experiences to pull from in his writing, something of like a Hemingway, um, if you want to think like that. But they just go on together throughout boot camp as they head to Tigerland, which is essentially a forested training area that is the Vietnam training place in America. It's supposed to represent Vietnam. It's supposed to be a hell on earth right below Vietnam, where the American soldiers are completely acclimated to what they're going to be experiencing minus live fire. Um, and this film only dramatizes the buildup to arriving at Tigerland and immediately before they actually head off to Vietnam. So it's an entirely a training camp movie. There's no actual war sequences, despite being a war movie. Um, and, you know, along the way, they they encounter their fellow privates, some who uh, just cannot take the mental strain of serving, some who cannot take the mental strain of the political ramifications of what they're going up against, despite not being a very political movie, I will say. Um, and also, you know, one soldier in particular, Private Wilson, is played by Shay Wingham, who seems to be there just for like a sadistic bloodlust he, he wants to be involved in the killing he wants to be involved in the fighting and yeah that's not a great synopsis that i just gave but um really what you want to take away from it is is boz's half philosopher half rebel um 
something very akin to uh, like an early James Dean rule or early Brando rule, which was definitely noted in a few of the reviews that I read. Um, he kind of represents the ultimate hero, I think, in this kind of a story. He doesn't have many faults and the faults that he does have, I think, are somewhat portrayed as um, also contributing to his role as almost the moral authority, the the kind of mental authority about what's happening to these soldiers. Um, in that sense, it's a like an ideal breakout role for somebody of Farrell's age, somebody of Farrell's stature. How, what do you yeah. think about that? Yeah, something you didn't touch on in this is um, he he kind of be, ends up Boz ends up becoming within this platoon first kind of a de facto like moral leader and then ends up becoming like their official designated leader he is yes, also yes. Uh, a near savant when it comes to getting people kicked out of the army and much of the first half of the movie is him like basically these lengthy vignettes with other soldiers that climax with him like doing some off-screen legal jujitsu basically to get them section eight and and shipped home um all all the while while he is like acting as kind of a private hawkeye-esque uh rabble rouser at the camp and planning his own escape to mexico which he ends up i think valiantly sacrificing and 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 refusing to 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 flee the country because of this fear that the shea wiggum character who at multiple times in the movie attempts to kill him <laughs> will will actually successfully kill one of the other privates yeah. instead but yeah this point you're making that it's almost like a a very heroic, like on times borderline Christ-like figure in his yes. his raw decency, which it's interesting because it, it does scream like this is the sort of role you're going to want to present a like new hot young movie star. But at the same time, like I don't I don't know if Colin Farrell is good in this movie. Well, to get before before I want to make a judgment on him being good or bad, I, I do yeah. want to say that at one point in the film when they're on leave, after he has already kind of used his prowess of the military code book and military um, judicial law, um, a private from a different platoon approaches him and says, are you are you Boz? I was told if you want to get out of Vietnam, you can either turn to God or you could turn to Boz. <laughs> and you can't really look at it any other way. He really, yeah. he truly is, he truly is positioned in in a in a religious role almost um, in this film. Um, but I will say, I do think he's good in this film. I think the role itself is a tricky one that asks him to play a character that couldn't, that almost like couldn't possibly exist in real life. Is is what I took yeah, away from it. Yeah, I feel yeah. like. You, you see a lot of like switching throughout this character and you see a lot of, I think, tension involved vis-a-vis -vis the, nar the narrative, whether or not he is in many way, like, is he the protagonist or is the Matthew Davis character mm -hmm. the protagonist? And oddly, it is in the scenes that are more most plot heavy and most directive that it does in fact feel like Matthew Davis as the observer witnessing this, like this great man he knew for a stretch is the yeah. protagonist. And 
the less that Boz is this like figure for good in disrupting the 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 military, and the more that the movie kind of downshifts into being in many ways like a very much a hangout comedy about these men on a camp that's when it weirdly feels like in terms of who's the audience supposed to be identifying with in that sense that that Farrell tends to then step into the pragmatist shoes and he's better in those seats undeniably he is very good in the hanging out in the barracks going out on leave you know, chatting with the boys scenes than he is in the more dramatically important action sequences or kind of like, I'm going to get you out stuff. In in those bits, he really feels a bit lost. Like he's searching for who this guy is. And I do think, you know, I said last week that he's a very instinctive actor on top of his natural skills. And I do think that's why he's better in the more communal sequences I don't necessarily know that he's like disastrously bad because he has these instincts to keep it going. But, I wouldn't say that at all. Um, yeah, I'm not saying that in the slightest, yeah. but he does feel the more heroic this guy's supposed to be, the more lost Colin feels because it feels like there is no there there for him to be working with. The accent doesn't help. <laughs> <laughs> well, it doesn't necessarily bother me. Oh, I, I, oh, I was it bothered re- me. I, I don't know what it is about it. I like, you know, it definitely it it's there are certain points, there are certain points where for stretch of dialogue, he does seem to catch a hold of like an authentic Texas Texas accent. But the the deal is it's so inconsistent. And and when it is inconsistent, it's not like half Texas. He's like full Dublin yes. in other scenes. That's what the problem lays in on. But it's I also think not that's maybe why it doesn't bother me as much because it's not because the scenes where the accent fade away fades away, I think are the scenes where he's performing better, like the actual like emotional yes. text of the performance is better. And it's clear that he's essentially like, I have to tap into something and I can't do it while thinking about gaining yes. this dialect. Like I can only do it if I'm being true to myself and true to who I am. Um there, there are many stretches yeah. in this movie where you can see you can see him on screen working out what he's going to say. Mm-hmm. And I do think it is a combination of the fact that there's this shaky accent that he can't get a hold of. I kind of do want to apologize to Kevin Spacey last week because <laughs> this accent is, I think, so much worse. And I don't I don't think it's ever a good Texas accent. I that's, think it's at times a possible true. Alabama accent. Um, he's a little too deep south. In it, as someone who's lived in Texas, I know what a Texas accent sounds like. Okay, I'll he's, I'll, he's t- I'll take you as the authority. He's he's drifting a little few, The few interactions I've had with people from West Texas, I kind of I kind of get it. Oh. At some See, this sounds this points, sounds but... if anything, this sounds like an East yeah. Texas, East Texas deep South okay. accent. But you, I think it's partially again. I'm from just... New Jersey, yeah. so accents hey. are incredibly difficult for me. <laughs> hey, I'm walking here. Walking here, hey. Gabagool. <laughs> Um, but I do think nothing that, but gabagol, grandma, between, just fats and nitrates. Between how difficult the accent it clearly is for him, and that this sense that like maybe the character isn't there, you see him working. And I, I realize mm-hmm. watching this that what I like about Colin Farrell as a performer in most pictures, and we'll get to it clearly, is that I rarely, I very rarely see him putting in the effort. It 
he normally feels effortless and this movie he's he's reaching for something i think he can't quite grab if if there's a critique that i have to make or maybe not a critique but trying to like analyze what's going on here i i do part of me as somebody who's now older than 25 kind of figures that he might be a little too young for the role and and i understand that the character is probably 21 22 but i think feral as a 25 year old irish man is maybe having difficulty just tapping into like the entirety of american history that's being wrapped up and portrayed in this film i it's i i would find that to be incredibly difficult especially for someone again who didn't spend a lot of time in drama school um or in any kind of not not to say that he's not intelligent he clearly is like you watch any contemporary interview with him he he might not he might not speak verbosely but he clearly has a lot going on behind his yes. eyes yes um, but Undeniably. i think it's possible that that as it, it, you know in this very very young version of Colin Farrell it the sheer weight of what this role is like asking him to take on it might just be a little too much just because of lack of experience somebody who's coming out of Dublin it, it I imagine it'd be pretty difficult to, to take on like the amount of cultural weight that's that's behind this private boss that he's trying to play yeah but I do think I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna come to his defense actually and I, I do want to stress I I did like this movie um this is one of those weird movies where i definitely liked it but also most of the stuff that i have to say about it is is negative yeah Uh, connor i I think you connor liked this one more than i did um (laughs) but i i to to come to colin's defense i do think he's given poor material to work with and i think this sort of tension that i kind of was speaking to earlier vis-a-vis is he the object or is he the subject of the narrative is is kind of a central flaw of the film um yes i agree and one fully as well and and because the movie can never really make up its mind on this in this case until uh, the very end and then it kind of asks you to reconfigure everything you had seen up until that point the the obvious touchstone for this movie uh is the first half of full metal jacket Mm -hmm. and while i do think this movie is vastly superior to Full Metal Jacket, a movie that is bad and sucks because it was directed by Stanley Kubrick, who sucks uh, and made bad movies. Um, Why are you doing this? That movie is awful. Uh, The first half, the first half is solid. Can I say something? Yeah, go. Colin Colin Farrell would have 100% been in a Stanley Kubrick movie if Kubrick lived. Oh, 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 I, I have said this time and time again, and I'll say it again. Colin Farrell is the good Barry Lyndon. Yes, like, yes, yes. That's, that's <laughs> yes. the person you want to play Barry Lyndon. Um, I also think he, like, if you look at something like Killing of a Sacred Deer, he, he's also in that film, like, oddly pulling in stuff from Cruise and Eyes Wide Shut. Yes. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll get to these later. We'll get to those later. I mean, um, I mean, truly a, a, a Lanthimos Barry Lyndon remake. With he also Colin sounds, he dream. also just sounds like the ideal actor for Kubrick, where if, if there's anything about his work ethic that we understand is that the directors kind of tell him do this thing. And he's like, okay, I'll go do it. 
Yeah, and, I, uh, I, I want him to be in good movies, not Stanley Kubrick movies. <laughs> Regardless, my, my point about Ice White Arguable. Trap is that Arguable. <laughs> if you if you if you lay out the plot beats of the first half of Eyes Wide Shut, the training camp stuff, that is very well, clearly a story about the Vincent D'Onofrio character. Yeah. Sorry, not Eyes Wide Shut, yeah. Full Metal Jacket, sorry. Um, that is very clearly a story about the Vincent D'Onofrio character and his relationship to the Arlie Ermey drill sergeant. Mm. But because of how that movie is written, because of how that movie is shot, because of the, the conception of what that movie is going into... That movie, I think, does understand that this is not actually Private uh, Pyle's story. This is Matthew Modine's story, that all this narrative that is playing out is intentionally abstracted and kind of played at a maximalist tenor because mm-hmm. the, the actual narrative that is being told is the effect it had on this man who witnessed it and who was ancillarily attached to it and i think somebody in that film who's a conscientious journalist yes this movie introduces a character who is so clearly modeled on private joker Mm -hmm. with uh is it i'm already forgetting his name paxton um (laughs) but very uh he's very white bread oh almost as white bread as he can get yeah, so I just want to yeah. say, last week I, I talked about how there's a difference between an attractive face and a beautiful face. Oh, and like, okay, here we go. There, There is, I think, <laughs> nothing. I Matthew Davis, a very handsome man, right? Like, mm-hmm. if I saw him on the street, I'd be like, good-looking guy. It, it, it surprised me very little to find out that this guy primarily had a career on um, CW primetime soaps because apparently he was on the vampire dies for 10 years right he's got good bone structure he's got good hair he's got nice eyes but the second he stepped onto screen like five minutes of this movie i'm like this is the most boring face i've ever seen in my <laughs> life and i was almost offended that this movie wanted me to look at this guy after this these beautifully photographed shots of colin farrell getting dragged uh out of a camp um and I think that is the point I was trying to make last week is that there are beautiful faces and there are attractive faces and Colin Farrell is beautiful and I want to look at him. And Matthew Davis is just a big old hunk of generic white bread. And I don't, and again, it's this question of like, clearly this character is introduced being modeled after Private Joker in that he's kind of withdrawn, you know, kind of sardonic, very much a writer, but the movie can't be less interested in his experiences except for a handful of you know sequences that exist to remind you that oh yeah this guy is supposed to be the center of this picture and it wants to focus on colin i think for obvious reasons because because colin is so much more dynamic a performer and because the character is more dynamic but when the character kind of exists in this big picture idyllic sense he can't really become a person. And then you're left kind of unsure vis-a-vis what's the story I'm watching. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. I also think, so when you're looking at boss's story, like boss as a character makes just, he just flat out makes more sense than Paxton does in my opinion. Like he starts off, he was drafted. He does not want to be there. He does not believe in the war. (laughs) And what I found most interesting about this character's arc is that what's being presented as rebelliousness and um, 
in in almost uh resistance to to authoritarianism at the beginning of the film i don't know if it i don't know if it evolves or if it's or if it was there since the beginning it it ends up becoming portrayed as not necessarily just a rebelliousness against authority but the uncovering the true tactics of what survival in this kind of setting is it's it's once he becomes the actual platoon leader of of this group of men that's when they finally start to get their shit together because he starts one being honest with them to stop playing these kind of like fraternity schoolyard games with them that the military seems to love to play i did not serve in the military but these movies that we watch um portray a lot of you know mind games a lot of uh physical taunting and things of that nature when boss becomes leader of the platoon he cuts all of that out he says whatever we're doing from here on out it's all about survival that's the Mm -hmm. only thing i'm interested in that's the only thing you guys are interested in that's the only thing we're working towards from this moment to when we to when our boots touch vietnam um that character arc makes a lot of sense to me even even um even reconciling the rebelliousness of his character because his rebellion he he has the consciousness that like he's not gonna win against the the drill sergeants unless he has the platoon behind him um and he knows how far to push and i found that very intriguing and that that's something that's not portrayed in a lot of these movies that take place during training camp when you move aside to Paxton though and I'll let you say what you have to say in a second but when you move aside to Paxton it's very difficult to reconcile any of the interior conflict that this character is feeling just based off of the dialogue that he's meant to give these monologues that he's meant to give about why he still believes in serving and why why he still wishes to go to Vietnam um I mean, it's, you know, it's presented that he's do that he enlisted for experience. He thinks it's going to make him either like a more virile, stronger man or writer, artist. Um, but it's also presented that he's there because now that he has enlisted, he knows that if he somehow finds a way out, all he's doing is leaving somebody else to die in Vietnam and he can't come to terms with that. I, I do think those are like strong points, but the fact that this man is as boring seeming as he is, it just doesn't make, and, and he's, you know, notably intelligent has spent some years in college seems to know kind of the rules of life more than a lot of these other younger recruits and draftees and trainees in their platoon. Um, But his, I guess, I guess what we're looking at really is the difference between somebody who's about to become a movie star and somebody who's about to be on CW television series because Farrell knows what to do with the material that he's being given despite what that material might be leaving him short of. And Matthew Davis seems not incapable, but he hasn't yet made up the process of how to to make his character more thorough to make these points more understandable and that empathy i don't think is there um yeah and i have issues with kind of like what happens to him at the end of the film and we can talk about that later but i'll, I'll let you pick up what you want to say yeah no i think 
I think this this kind of complicated tension of having the the more kind of withdrawn erudite guy also be the only one in the team, aside from maybe the Shad Wiggum character, I can't even remember, who who isn't a drafty, who who is going there voluntarily. Oh no, the um the the Clifton Collins character also yes, yes. So he's not yes. the only one, but but the idea of bullet building that tension out of having this this figure who screams like conscientious objector type not be forced to be there is a very interesting idea that this movie can never really get off the runway um and i i will say uh the 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 gentleman who wrote this movie uh ross clavin and uh, michael mcgruther this is an all-time great uh wrote one movie uh <laughs> duo for both of them i want mcgruther has like a, a they all they also have some short films after this but this is really like i guess they must have written a a spec that that caught schumacher's eye but i do think yeah. the script is kind of a mess um well it's one of those things where it's one of those things where in a different film like i'm thinking of like the world war one films like the original yeah. all quiet on the western front and big parade it's it's about soldiers enlisting because their idea of what war is is not the reality of war and those films are about being met with the reality of war and 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 that's what makes them anti-war films if you want to call them that i think what's difficult about this one is given that it takes place in 1971 and every other soldier in the platoon seems to have this like innate awareness that they're going to Vietnam to die and they're not actually doing anything good by being over there makes the Matthew Davis stoicism so much like <laughs> more impossible to wrap your head around. Cause yeah. if he is this kind of, uh, I don't know what I'm trying to say in a sense, like intellectual yearning writer, you would think he would have understood that by this point in his life. And you, you would, you would think that the decisions that he's making, I don't know, they just seem like wildly impulsive to me. And, but yet the performance doesn't reflect that impulsiveness at all. The performance only reflects like deep meditative thought and like sound well-sounded decision-making despite these I think realities. You are giving that performance a lot of credit. Uh, I feel like for, I'm, I feel like I'm saying it's awful, and it's but it's yeah, but you like, saying that like oh, it reads as like meditative and stoic is is to me Matthew Davis being completely flat and inert and kind of working well, I think, with the fact that he gives Colin something to bounce off of. But I I gotta mm. say, I have a real hang up with Vietnam War movies. Um, probably the genre of war movie that I like least. Of all the big like like I I I will absolutely go to the mat for World War Two, World War One, Korean, uh, Iraq and War on Terror movies over most Vietnam movies, even the ones that are like I think often considered masterpieces. I don't tend to ride for, um, and I think the reason is is that I don't necessarily think this is Hollywood's fault per se because I am very much a person who thinks that mainstream cinema in the United States tends to reflect and follow the culture as much as it tends to 
dictate the culture, if not more mm-hmm. so. I think um, I'm a full believer. It's weird that we've never talked about this, but yeah. I actually, I think I fully agree with what you just said. Yeah, I, I think it's yeah. it's very uh, easy to make the like Marxist arguments that, you know, Hollywood, the, the Grimiskian arguments that Hollywood is kind of an insidious machine that dictates hegemonic culture back to America. But I actually think Hollywood is more of a mirror that reflects these mm. things back but the way you know what i'll you... say i'll just add something real quick yeah i think i think once you hit this is going to sound very pretentious but i think once you hit postmodernism, i think the idea of hollywood kind of dictating what behaviors that people want to emulate is kind of lost because um once once cinema especially once american cinema let's just yeah siphon that for what it is once american cinema almost entirely becomes a critique upon itself then you almost fully lose the ability to like create culture you only have the ability to to make commentary on culture and be part of the discourse not incite the discourse at hand yeah no for sure and i i mean i think we can both agree that apparatus theory is mostly horseshit yeah um we are (laughs) we are we are not we are not of that school um sorry dan moore but um <laughs> he's not gonna listen to this There's it's no about movies that people watch um but anyway the, the point i was trying to make is we have we as americans have this understanding of the vietnam war um that i think is reflected in honestly every single movie that has ever come out in the united states about vietnam has the exact same attitude toward vietnam which is the country's attitude towards Vietnam, which is it is something that was inflicted upon a generation of American men. Do you get what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. That, like that this was a, a like a crucible that our country went through and we came out the other side changed. And to some degree, of course, that is in a way true, but it is a drop in a bucket to what the Vietnam actual war actually was, which was a thing that the United States did to Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the yeah. focus, I think the American cinema has and movies like this movies, like coming home movies, like apocalypse now movies, like full metal jacket that kind of call themselves quote unquote, more anti-war, I think are of the exact same camp with this, with stuff like the green berets or, uh, the Rambo movies that ultimately these movies are concerned with the the potential the war offered a generation of American men to transform into something greater or something broken. But even in the ones where like even in a movie like The Deer Hunter, where like it destroys all these lives, it also walks out with like De Niro being the one survivor who is a better man for it and it's a very different tenor than i think we talk about iraq war movies or world war ii movies this movie bothered me much less on that front than i think a lot of vietnam movies do and i think part of it is there's an aspect uh you can finish yeah i I think part of it is that it never leaves the camp um that's what i'm gonna say i think that's what allows this movie to there's this long-standing question in our relationship to movies of how can a war movie be anti-war when it's <laughs> everything that's making the movie captivating is the yeah. depiction of war. I mean, Truffaut spoke about it. He's not the only one. Like almost every, I'm a real hardliner on that sense. I think it's a pretty 
infallible argument. Yeah. Um, there's a, I mean, everybody has a handful of exceptions to the rule. I, but what I think is interesting about this is that you, that you never see the Viet Cong. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. it's the Vietnam is presented as, or the trauma of Vietnam is presented as something that American soldiers did to American soldiers and not necessarily something yes. that the Viet Cong did to Americans. Vietnam becomes an abstraction. I think that the, the way this movie pulls that off and something like born on the 4th of July, um, mm-hmm. in, in a way the born on the 4th of July kind of falls into these, these more imperialistic is because the idea that Vietnam is in the future for these men. Um, that they are not coming back broken, but it is that the very idea that they're being forced into these environments kind of, I think, emphasizes that full metal jacket idea of the system is rotten and like destroys these men in a sense. And because it doesn't go into Vietnam, it doesn't then fall into the trap that full metal jacket does where every Vietnamese person in full metal jacket is shot like a monster in a horror movie. Um, and that movie is like deeply racist and, and specifically weirdly hates Vietnamese women. Um, but this movie, I think dodges it. I also will say that I, I am not prepared to fight for, to this, fight for full this metal movie jacket at this I moment. I can't <laughs> fucking stand full metal jacket. The, the other reason I think this movie dodges that is kind of what you were getting to earlier that, its relationship to the evils of the war in particular are very muddled and somewhat incoherent. But because of that, I think it emphasizes this sense that the, the, the real rot there isn't in Vietnam or even what the United States is doing in Vietnam, that it is the, the sort of culture of the army and what the army wants to do to these men. And I'm not saying it like is a slam dunk, like, great anti-war movie but i think it it kind of stumbles into some places of i think occasional profundity it's not a paul verhoeven movie uh paul verhoeven's my go-to guy who can actually make successful anti-war movies uh yeah i think the absurdism of verhoeven of verhoeven yeah. is something that like 99 percent of filmmakers Which is cannot obtain ah but but if anyone could do it schumacher could i think I don't think Schumacher is absurdist. He's he's very absurd. I don't he's he is absurd. (laughs) I don't know if he's absurdist in the way. I don't know if he's satirical in the way that that like a fear hope is. I I mean, I I hardcore disagree. And my my evidence in that case is that this movie is three years after Batman and Robin. Yeah, but I don't Um, know. Is Batman and Robin like I I don't even I think the complaint about Batman and Robin is that it's not actually a parody. Like it, it takes oh, it takes that idea no. of campy Batman at face value. And like I think I obviously like they're you know the diehard Batman fans who are never going to in a million years appreciate what's going on in that film. That film does have genuinely funny aspects to it. Part of me feels like there's a fundamental misunderstanding of what makes Batman hilarious. In that I film. I hardline disagree, and if we can go on a brief Batman tangent, Batman and Robin is in so many ways Batman Forever to some degree, but Batman and Robin more so is the natural extension of the William Dozer TV show from the 1960s with Adam West and Burt Ward, and there there's an argument in Susan Sontag's notes notes on Camp that Camp and Pop Art 
are two different things that pop art is that camp is kind of warm and inviting and winking and pop art is isolating and mocking and cruel and i do think the tv show kind of rides the line between those two modes in a way that makes the comedy read as more overtly comic but schumacher i think fully takes batman back into the camp camp to coin a phrase and in doing so i think that movie has an inviting nature again to maybe a more homosexual and sophisticated audience but i do think batman and robin is incredibly funny but it's not funny in a joke sense it's funny in a the world is rotten sense let's celebrate vulgarity that to me reads as deeply earnest and i think there there could be more of that kind of stab to this movie, which is mostly about half-naked men rolling around in the mud. Like, he could have cranked it up. He is clearly choosing to be a little more, quote-unquote, sophisticated. He could have, but, but the thing is, he could, like, sophistication, that's not unsophisticated. Because he could have worked in a little Claire Denis into mm. the aspects mm. of what's going on in this film. We definitely cannot turn this into like an elongated discussion about Batman and Robin. No, that was my Batman point. That was my Batman point that I I I just think Batman and Robin is smarter and more incisive and funnier than it gets credit for. I think, I don't think you're wrong because I don't think you're wrong just purely based off the the fact that you can watch those movies and have such a good time enjoying them. Now, does that necessarily mean that it it lives up to what people wanted from that movie at the time when it was made. Yeah. No, but I, I think like, you know, we have enough Batman movies right now and for the rest of history, we'll have enough Batman movies. You could go and watch those movies and have a good time and appreciate them for what they are. I think, I think what I struggle with like fully embracing those films is that they seem so disinterested in what makes batman characters which are notably probably the best classic comic book characters it seems disinterested in what makes those characters um engaging and i'm, I'm gonna actually cut you off here okay. because i do think we need to table this discussion yeah, 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 yeah. because we're gonna get into this this is i, I realize as we're saying this this is not the movie where we should have the Batman conversation. The no, movie where not. we should have the all-encompassing <laughs> okay. Batman yeah. conversation. No, because I do think, and we'll get to it, but I do think the Batman's relationship to camp and these sort of tensions that exist is A, something that movie seems to be doing almost accidentally, and B, I think handily the most interesting part of the most recent batman movie do we table um, this discussion on i don't wait but let's keep talking about schumacher though. yeah but but i do want to keep yeah. talking about schumacher i want to table the batman combo okay. i want to have the schumacher combo and i do want to pull this this discussion out of this like we're dunking on this movie tailspin that i feel like we're getting into i think uh, i think we almost have to to be yeah. able to appreciate it because I think this movie looks insane I mean, Matthew Liebatique is like this a movie god looks incredible, and this yeah. is why it's the Liebatique of it all, and it's the Schumacher of it all. And I do think, like, anytime someone wants to say Joel Schumacher is a bad director, this is actually going to be one of the movies I'm going to hold up 
and say, no, look how fucking good every shot in this movie looks. Because he manages to do this insane trick in this movie. And Lee Batik is part of it. Um, where he's shooting, he sh- first of all, this is a studio film that is shot on 16 millimeter. God bless Joel Schumacher. And he is very clearly shooting loose and shooting handheld and shooting improvisationally. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know Liebetik, this is Matthew Liebetik's first studio film. This is the same year as Requiem for a Dream. Um, Liebetik has spoken about tending to prefer sets where he can light an entire space um, and kind of pick pick angles and pick setups on the fly uh, based, on, based on what he's going with. This movie is clearly a blend of him doing that and them just shooting with natural light, but it's them winging every shot full of snap zooms, crazy pans, and yet every single frame you pause on looks somehow as immaculately designed and composed as one of Joel Schumacher's window displays. And it, it's kind of a miracle. I think Libatique is one of the only cinematographers who nails the ethos of documentary cinematography or documentary yeah. influenced cinematography with without Ackroyd having it seem overly distant because yeah. I think Libatique it embraces those documentary techniques, but he's willing to put the camera in a position that it would never find itself in in an actual documentary. And I think there are a lot of cinematographers who embrace documentary techniques, but the only times they experiment with the placement of the camera in a fictionalized narrative sense is going way too over the top. Um, You know, they have these kind of, you you can almost see, if you watch a film like... The big short, I'll use an example. Barry Aykroyd. Well, I yeah. was going to say, because I think the, the, the one the one example I would say is I think Barry Aykroyd fucking nails it in the Hurt Locker. And then the yes, past yes. 15 yeah. years has been Barry Aykroyd playing the hits to increasingly worse results. I don't know if it's a McKay thing, but it does feel like he just it does it it does feel like Ackroyd just says like I would rather just sit in the corner over here and give me a zoom lens and yeah. like I'll get the close up from here and I'll get the wide shot from here and I don't need to move while we're doing the scene and there, I mean not to say that it doesn't work in s- certain test cases but um it it definitely removes it definitely removes a layer like of expressionism from the film and I think like Libatique working with um Aronofsky for so long who's like the premier expressionist American filmmaker of the Think last about, 20 years I, I I kind of am like well having seen the whale one of the ugliest movies I've ever seen like I kind of want to pump the brakes I haven't seen but, that so that doesn't count oh it looks so <laughs> I haven't bad. seen it I haven't seen it just just looking over Lee Batik's um filmography it is very interesting that like that that style that he has that like documentary style how often it comes back to burn a movie in the ass like that he's mm-hmm. made something like don't worry darling where that movie kind of looks like whatever but if but you, that's if clearly you, not like that movie does not yeah. suffer it's not a cinematography a cinema cinema yes but graphical the, breakdown the real you know? strengths i'm noticing in his filmography are either 
the times he gets paired up with a really, really strong visual stylist, like someone with Spike mm-hmm. Lee, um, mm-hmm. where where they can like meet in the middle and get these great images, something like Inside Man, which looks incredible, or when he's working with people who really get on his wavelength with this like documentary style photography and and kind of find a magic out of the chaos and i'm thinking of something like stars born from a couple years mm-hmm. ago because bradley cooper's coming out of the similarly improvisational david o russell style or um i just had it up here oh yeah uh <laughs> right after this he shoots josie and the pussycats which is so much a movie about like building these beautiful sets and finding this the the shots in the space that like that's when it works and aronofsky i think really splits the difference because like as much as i want to rag on the fucking whale which sucks like libatik also shot fucking mother and mother uh, looks insane do you know about how they shot black mother? swan right I think he shot black, black swan, swan but mother i think people... black swan might be my favorite of libatik's yeah. and probably and of aronofsky's as well and i fucking love mother but do you know how they yeah. shot mother production wise I no, I don't think I do. This this is my dream thing for <laughs> someone to put as a special feature on a disc because Mother is set in this one house. Oh, and they the, shot. I know what you're. And, and the camera yeah, is often following Jennifer Lawrence in lockstep and having to like complete these these pans and these tracking shots into these like very elegantly composed. Um, images that there is a version of mother they shot in a warehouse with dogville style markings designating where the rooms are so that Libatik wanted to do that movie basically twice so he could get everything down and so he knew the space so well and that's when that guy really shines and I feel like pairing him up with Schumacher you really get this sense that Schumacher wants that that he wants to like exist in this camp and not have traditional setups and use handheld cameras and natural lighting so that he can get these spontaneous beautiful images of these men and i think it works wonders mm-hmm. i agree with you 100 yeah. i also what want to amazes shout out- me about okay you go <laughs> i was gonna say this movie yeah. is also extremely desaturated um, in a way that I find really nice because it really perfectly captures the um, not just the fact that it's shot on 16 millimeter, but the actual like color palettes and textures of documentary and home movies that were shot on 16 millimeter in the late 60s and early 70s. Like if you watch a bunch of like Vietnam War protest footage from that era, it looks like this, but everyone in this movie is beautiful. And that's such an interesting tension. Something that I can't get over is, isn't that other version of Mother, I've seen clips from it, isn't that just shot on like a regular Sony handheld like camcorder? I, I, I believe so, yeah. And I think like Libatique, what I love about him is he like exudes that Agnes Varda, like I, I don't, I want the camera to be an extension of my person. I don't want to fight the camera at all. Like I just want to be able to turn the camera on and I want to be able to know where the light's coming from and I want to just get in there and get the shot. And I think that in essence is what makes this film look the way it does, as great as it does. Because when I when I was watching this, I couldn't help but think about kind of like the found footage craze that happened, you know, obviously with Blair Witch Project. And not not that not to compare that to this, because this is what I have to say. 
while those movies take the idea of handheld homemade video making and they turn it to the nth degree and they and you know some of them are incredible in the way that they in the way that they appropriate the handheld camera and appropriate the handmade aesthetic i think what they miss is the pieces of found footage and the pieces of photography that kind of persist in our memory um persistent archives are like regularly pulled out and looked at they're not mm. ones they're not ones where you're constantly thinking oh there's somebody here behind the camera it's I, i'm just imagining these these shots of vietnam that i have seen that were obviously made by war journalism crews or other kind of news organizations or just you know documentary filmmakers or other private journalists but i'm thinking of these images that just look so of the moment and they look fully ingrained within the environment that they're in and that is what every single shot of this film like carries mm. with it is that you're not necessarily thinking of the documentary aesthetic yeah. as as you're not thinking of that aesthetic as the fourth wall you're, you're thinking of that aesthetic as uncovering a truth behind who these men actually were like during the time that they were serving during the time that they were training um yeah i would say that like the the libatique aesthetic and i think we're trying to get at with this discussing like documentary style photography and found footage and stuff like that is like libatique i've never thought of libatique as a realist it is more about creating he's more of an real, expressionist right? yeah he's you an know? expressionist yeah. but it's about creating these real spaces so we can make something like hyper real in a sense and and designed and stylized in his own way and that is why i think he matches so well with joel schumacher's you know window set dressing uh aesthetic that that i think captures something beautiful and i think that's why i like colin looks great in this movie everyone looks great in this movie this movie has this this beautiful uh this, this beautiful look upon its its performers and like you know we're we're both smart right well you're smart um, i would hope i, 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 I <laughs> yeah. can kind of that's I can the curveball what it. you just said <laughs> i gotta fake it a bit we we are both aware that when someone says like oh a woman shot this movie that's the female gaze oh a gay man shot this movie that's the the gay gaze right like that's that is a complete misunderstanding of what people actually mean when they're yeah, talking entirely. about the male gaze. Like we're talking about issues with the male gaze and stuff like that. And, and other gazes, we are actually, we are not talking about like, oh, this person is hot to look at. Therefore, they are the recipient of the gaze. We are talking about these like complex negotiations of on-screen power and audience desire and who the protagonist identifies with. But I think the fact that Joel Schumacher is, you know, a gay man shooting this movie, to some degree, I think that in a way, many ways leads to that kind of confusion of identification and who's the subject and who's the object that we were talking about earlier, because Colin is kind of placed in this sense that he is in many way the narrative mover, but he is also so obviously the bearer of the camera's gaze in this that we, the viewer, are kind of left in a conflicted position of do we want to be him or do we want to look at him? 
But I think that sort of confusion, even if it destabilizes Colin's character, it ends up diffusing the sort of, you know, charged power of us looking at this movie in a way that weirdly like blossoms the homosocial nature of it. Like those yes. kind of erotic tensions are deflected onto Colin into to such a degree that this then gets to be a movie about men rolling around in the mud that weirdly isn't that erotic or gay. It's it's especially odd considering like the two characters are almost christened into this film through like a group sex scene. It is a group sex act that is so disinterested in the women. And I it did is, love, yeah. <laughs> love seeing that. It's it's very much, it's very much those those shots are very much of like, let's see the muscles of Colin Carroll's yeah, back. The sweat. Back it's ripple. the sweat. Yeah. Yes. It's yes. the sweat glistening down their butts. But I think what's odd about that, or not odd, I think what that sequence does that other films of this nature don't do is that it completely disarms any kind of uh hyper masculinist competition between mm -hmm. um boz and paxton and because when when they're at the bar originally any other movie that plays out as kind of you know that aggro competition between the two of them trying to outdo each other um this film disarms that completely they yeah. like it they while they may not fully understand each other, I think what I like about this film so much is other than the Shea Wiggum character, they are all there to survive and they understand that every other man who's there is there to survive. And they're not necessarily these, these questions of like, dislike, of fondness versus um, competition versus rivalry kind of fade by the wayside because the magnitude of their lives being on the line is so great that um that kind of camaraderie between soldiers that this film understands and you know i don't yeah. know if that's true but this film is presenting kind of a relationship that other war films don't it really doesn't and i I, yeah. I do think the fact that colin is so clearly positioned as the bearer of the gaze in this sense means that you know, his his own on-screen gaze and his own on-screen narrative dominance is kind of defanged from how it would be, I think, if a heterosexual director made this movie. And mm -hmm. because he doesn't then need to be the dominant side of audience identification, that, that sense, what you're speaking of, of like that macho competition kind of just disappears into the ether from the second this movie begins because, because I think of how it's shot. Well, would it be would it be unfair to propose that of a lesser film with a more not necessarily made by a heterosexual, but of a more heterosexual perspective that the Boz character and the Paxton character would at some point at some moment throughout the film have a sequence where Boz pushes Paxton too far and they yes. get in an argument and they start but pushing each other and one of them violently attacks the other one. And I think what I liked about this so much is that it was like the true essence of brotherhood in the sense yeah. of like, you get to the point where you're like, I'm willing to sacrifice what I have to help him get out because while I, cause I, I think, I think there's an aspect of human nature that's very little talked about that. If you get, if you grow fond enough of somebody in your life, the, th the they become the thing that you hold dear and, and you can't imagine 
you you can't imagine living on knowing that you left them behind you know what i mean and i think you know if all is fair in love and war and that's something that, that exists in a lot of american love films and not something that exists in a lot of american war films i appreciate that this film carries on that kind of relationship that we don't typically see yeah and like i said i i, I think we're agreeing i just think we're maybe coming at it from different aspects i think yeah I mean, they're, they're, there's no need for them to compete because of, I think, the way the movie destabilizes, like, the, the need for, like, masculine dominance through through yeah. Schumacher's, through Schumacher's eye. Like, that's, that's the point I'm trying to make. I think there's no need to compete because yeah. if, I'm trying, if I'm trying to make sense of this in the moment, I think through Schumacher's eyes, there's no need for them to compete. And there's no need for jealousy between them and between most of the rest of the platoon. Jealousy because, is a good way to put it. Yeah, because I think I think what makes Boz a compelling character is that while he's tempted towards a cowardice, if you want to call it that, of deserting the army and leaving his platoon mates behind, there is also an aspect of him that the other characters can't tap into because he's willing to stand up to, mm -hmm. to their superior officers. And, you know, I, the, the movie paints a very bleak picture of the realities of the army at that time. And I, I don't, while none of them leave training camp in a body bag, I don't think the movie believes that it's impossible for any of them oh, clearly. To, to, you know, leave unscathed by, <laughs> by the men who are who are supposed to be leading them the men who are supposed to be molding them um i mean shay wiggum at one point like holds a gun point blank to colin's head and pulls the trigger and only mm -hmm. it only it only doesn't end poorly because the gun jams but like even even to my like deeply deeply negative view of the army the fact that they let shay wiggum stay after doing that strikes me as a <laughs> almost comically cynical statement. Not only stay, but he gets made the platoon leader of the, yes! of the opposing they just, they platoon. Him around. Yeah. Like that, that blew my mind. I, like, like you got spunk kid. Now here's your promotion. You almost just murdered an American, but here's your promotion. Can I, uh, can I tag, a, drift the conversation more into talking about the rest of the cast of this movie? Or do you have more you wanted to say about Colin? I think I think what it is about Colin and I think what other directors I wish I knew I wish I knew more what other directors had seen this film because it's so impossible because this is not a film that anybody saw <laughs> well <laughs> you know? weirdly I mean Colin's if, if, if we're if we're if we're tackling two movies that Colin books off the strength of people having seen this one just based on the timeline, it is in fact phone booth. Well, okay, he, yeah. he, he would have, yeah, he yeah. would have, even if they don't kick him off of Hearts War and Minority Report after this, phone booth is the one that um, he he's gonna do as a proper follow up to this coming out. And phone booth is obviously, of course, Joel Schumacher. The uh, and I don't think it's an accident that. You know, a man this beautiful has his career kind of rides for the the great gay director of uh, 
of Hollywood of the era. No, I don't think I don't think ways. it's an accident at all. And I also think that's when we're very clear. What's very clear in this film from the very beginning is and what you know, I don't know if I I don't know if I would say I have a, a horse in the race, but what may win him an Academy Award this year is Colin Farrell has got he's gotta have the most sensitive eyes of <sighs> any male actor like that's working right now is that he's like the way he uses the way he uses his eyes the way he uses um his eyebrows you know the way the way that his sensitivity breathes through his face despite being so um despite being so chiseled i i think is something that i i can't think of another working actor at the moment that can reflect that will, skill that he has. I will also say, speaking of these eyes, the uh, IMDb trivia page for this movie, a place where no one has ever lied, ever. <laughs> uh, uh, a clearly trustworthy source. The IMDb trivia page claims that there was no makeup or hair team on this movie. Oh. Uh, maybe as like a cost-cutting measure, maybe as a measure to make it realist. Yeah. And sure, maybe, but Colin is wearing a lot of makeup in this yeah. movie. And every time you cut to a close-up of his eyes, he is fucking eyelinered out the fucking asshole. And it just, it, but it, it is that sense that you just like, you gasp that this man, this undeniably beautiful is in this like ugly place. I do think it actually kind of destabilizes the movie in a way because it emphasizes that like almost superhuman aspect of this character that we were kind of discussing at the start of this recording. Well, let, let's let's talk about it for a second because I think we've been dancing around it a little too much. I think I think what we're struggling with in this movie is that half of the movie seems to be from Boz's perspective and the other yes. half from Paxton's perspective. Yes. and the movie seems to work either way if it was to like wholly accept the one perspective, but it doesn't work when the perspectives are conflicting with each I, other. I Especially, think a perfect way of summing it up. The beginning of the movie seems entirely from Boz's perspective. And then it's almost like halfway through, he becomes too perfect of a person. And then by the end, when he makes his grand sacrifice to save Paxton and commit himself to the war, it fully jumps onto Paxton's side and it fully almost fictionalizes. I mean, this is a fictional story, but within the, I think, meta awareness of the film, it fictionalizes the Boz character as a recollection of not being um, like a true to life documentarian depiction yeah. of this man um which is a clever trick but again it destabilizes like what you're supposed to feel while you're watching him um there's an aspect of the ending of saving private ryan but i think what works in saving private ryan is that the damon character has only heard what has happened up until the point that they met him and didn't live through it. Yeah. But, but Paxton is there from the very beginning of this film yeah. and can be seen. There are very few moments where Paxton cannot at least overhear what's going on. And he is oftentimes scenes. in the room for conversations that yeah. it does not make sense for him to be in the room for. Yeah, exactly. Like so, so for example, Boz becomes like platoon leader, yeah. and Shea Wiggum attempts to kill, murder him <laughs> during like yeah. a shooting range activity. There's they're at 
at the shooting range. They're pointing the guns at the targets. And Shea Wiggum has one bullet left in the chamber and he turns it towards Boz and walks towards him. And again, fires it at Boz's head. The only thing that saves his life is that the gun miraculously jammed on the last bullet, on the last shot. Uh, but after that, they're in their their training officer's head headquarters, his his office room. And for whatever reason, Paxton is there as well, despite not being platoon leader and despite not being the one that had the gun. And not out. being involved yeah. in the in the scenario. He, yeah, it's, he tackles it's Wingham. He's the one that tackles Wingham to the ground. But again, he has nothing to do with with He's the, there because the, the movie can't yeah. <laughs> make up its mind about whether or not he's the protagonist. Um, and again, it's and again, yeah. him being uh, his character, being an aspiring writer um it's it's the the end of the film the film the film ends with boz concocting a plan to escape from tigerland to yeah. to escape through through the barbed wire fence and to have people from the outside world come and pick him up and bring him to mexico that's what's implied um is the plan although the plan's never stated outright uh his his great sacrifice is that he despite making it outside that barbed wire fence he comes back because he knows that he has to do something to get Paxton out of the war because Paxton is just mentally unfit to be there Paxton is too noble Paxton is what is what's implied by Boz's perspective I think yeah. is that Paxton is too noble and he's too pure of heart to to go to Vietnam and survive um he has too Paxton has too many I think I think I think what it's really implies that Paxton has too many aspirations of experience that someone someone of that nature just cannot survive in vietnam yeah that i I think the film implies that the only people that can survive in vietnam are people who are willing to give up anything that they were willing to do with the rest of their lives um but because of this paxton or during a training exercise in which the Wingham character just starts firing live ammo at everybody <laughs> down down range. Um, Boz takes the opportunity to fire a blank into Paxton's eye, which you know renders him unfit for for duty and sends him out of the war. Uh, there's a couple issues I have with that because just like with the ease that it's done and with the statement yeah. of there's no long term damage and that Paxton is going to be perfectly fine. I'm like, why are these soldiers just not doing this to each other left and right, like over and over again? Um, now that I'm thinking of it, is there a trend of feral movies in which he shoots a blank into somebody's eye? I know of at least two, which is more than I could say of any other actor. Oh God, that I might be we'll a fun. To, I guess we'll have tally. to keep track of that. I can't. What are the other? What are the other two you're thinking of? In Bruges, he shoots a. a oh my God! Of course, in Bruges, that's yeah. like the whole plot point in Bruges. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. interesting. I can't fucking wait to talk. And about I can't it. think actually, of another I'm actor that does that. Terrified to talk about in Bruges. <laughs> yeah, I a movie. I'm we have to make about. a point now. We have to make a point right now that we're gonna breeze through the Helter Skelter stuff in in Bruges and and <laughs> not worry yeah. too much about. Uh, in Bruges is gonna be a five hour episode. <laughs> um. Um. But so so we get to the end of Tigerland and Paxton is unfit for duty and um, Boz accepts that in order to get Paxton out of the war, he had to stay and not flee. And he goes off to war and Paxton stays back in America to conceivably write his grand novel about training camp that um, the movie is probably implying that it's an adaptation of despite it not 
actually existing in real life yeah um but like i said what that does what that ending implication does is like entirely fictionalize everything we know about the boz character up until that point it reconciles him being such an idealistic and such like a charming and and gravitating person because it's it you know it says like, i think oh he might not be real yeah. this is just how this is just how paxton remembers him you know? you're giving the movie too much credit on that point <laughs> that that is a that is an incredibly interesting idea that the movie like half-ass brings up in its final moments well the well the um, problem is that it's not that it's not that is not the the narrative aesthetic yes not, not a visual if that aesthetic. was the movie that is not the narrative aesthetic up until yeah. that point up until the very end if that was the movie, it would be a much more interesting movie. Instead, um, it's just a kind of enjoyable to watch, beautiful movie that's kind of a mess. And made $140,000 at the box office. Um, you know how, wait, you know how, um, you know how in Blank Check, they always talk about how Black Hat made no Yeah, money. that's what I was thinking. This, this is Tigerland way worse. is going to be our Black Hat. That's, this is way worse than... <laughs> Than black hat bombing or monkey bone bombing or anything you want to talk about as being a big bomb. And the maybe thing it's crazy it's so is cheap. like anybody would anybody will go see a war film. If you yeah, I mean, it, it's, war film it's, in theaters, people are going to go pay to go see the war film. It's, like, it's what, that they didn't put it in theaters, but yeah. table that because I have a game for later. Um, oh, I have one for you too. But okay, so but I do want to touch on, on a okay, couple more. Can I go first because yeah, I want to. I want to just say something. Because we don't have to talk about it that yeah. much. But I think what makes this movie work as a training camp movie that doesn't actually depict war, it was reminding me of the forward to um, Penguin Classics uh, release of Paths of Glory, um, the book that the Kubrick film is based off of. It's not, I'm not talking about the Kubrick film. So don't worry. Although I, I imagine that one would probably be the one Kubrick film you might like. No. Um no, you hate all of them. No, 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 no. <laughs> I, Eyes Wide Shut is a masterpiece. Okay, yeah. I, and I don't 2001 know why. and The Shining are good times. That you like that one. No, Eyes Wide um, Shut fucking goes. David Simon, creator of yes. The Wire, wrote the forward, and he quotes um, the book's author Humphrey Cro Humphrey Cobb as saying, "Where all these journeys ends and all's quiets fail utterly." At as anti-war propaganda in dear where they, where they become pro-war propaganda is in the stoicism the self-abnegation <laughs> the idealism and romantic nobility which they portray how actors hate war etc but christ how nobly they suffer and i think that nobility of the suffering is what makes all of these supposed anti-war films pro-war i think yeah. i think what succeeds in it just being about training camp is because training camp is essentially theater camp. They're play yes. acting war to train for it. I think their suffering does come across as noble because it's laying the groundwork for the actual like tragedies that are going to happen in the future, which yeah. are just implied and not actually like treated. No, that I think it's a really good point. So if I can segue us into something completely different. <laughs> Let's go. Uh, I would say this movie's primary legacy is being generally known of as Colin's first leading role. That's what I was trying to say at the beginning but of this episode. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. But I will say the other legacy this movie has, and maybe if you're only an awardsy person like I am, do you do you know where I'm going here? No, I don't. Okay. Let's so see. 
late in this movie, in the, like the last 20 minutes of this movie, oh, when they go to Tigerland. I want to talk about this as well. I know we're exactly where you're all going of right a now. sudden. Yep. <laughs> fucking Cole Hauser shows up. Uh, I, what playing... I was Cole Hauser in this film is is how I wanted to feel about Colin Farrell in uh, Ordinary Decent Criminal, yeah. where he shows up and I'm like, oh my god, who is that? I Cole, cannot. Cole stop Hauser shows up man. playing yeah. a guy who has been rotated out of service in Vietnam and is now working as a drill sergeant, and he's the guy overseeing their final, you know, training exercises in this, you know, swampland environment that is mocked up to look like a Vietnam Vietnamese village. Um, and Cole Hauser somehow got a Best Supporting Actor nomination at the Independent Spirit Awards for this. Movie. Oh, for the, for Tigerland? For Tigerland. It is outside of an ensemble, uh, ensemble award for being in the cast of Yellowstone at the SAG Awards for Best Ensemble a few years ago. And a couple of like, you know, film festival awards, which mean nothing. Mm. This is the only nomination he's ever received at like a major award category, his entire career. I think it's well and deserved it's, in this. It's, film. In, I don't know. It's such a, it's so weird that you would give it to Cole Hauser because he shows I know, up I know, I know. <laughs> so late in this movie. And it's really only one scene where he gives the like, I've been in the shit monologue. Yeah, nighttime. but what's crazy is that which in is my almost impossible. Opinion, there, there. You mean as in you don't, don't like the scene? No, I think it's so underlit, which I, which yeah, I yeah, love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's but so I think it underlit yeah. that you can barely no, I, see these guys' faces in the nighttime. That's the that's like that's like the scene I don't I can't stop thinking about after. It's a the really movie. interesting scene. Yeah, but I I have to assume that it's it's half that he like comes in late in the movie and gives this like really exciting performance and also half that this is just coming off a decade of is Cole Hauser gonna like pop in in Hollywood that never really pays off but he's I like he's been in so much stuff and he hasn't really stuck the landing that I can kind of see voters being like finally we're excited to see Cole Hauser in a movie because if, if you told me somebody in this movie got an indie spirit supporting nomination, I would not have guessed Cole Hauser. I think I, I might have. I would have guessed Clifton Collins. Because it's like in my mind, it's like Farrell and then Cole Hauser. And then oh, Clifton no, see, in my mind, it's Clifton Collins, Cole Hauser, and Farrell are kind of neck and neck. Man, is this but the Clifton best Collins. Clifton Collins performance? No, but Clifton Collins is great in this movie He's i am also fucking ride or die for clifton collins he is one of my favorite actors what 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 are your like what's your like mount rushmore for clifton for clifton my collins? mount rushmore for clifton collins give me a second to think it doesn't about have this. to be definite you could just yeah for that just you, off the dome you prefer to this one off off the off the dome i would have to say he probably should have fucking won the oscar for capote Okay. Yeah. Right. He plays yeah. Perry Smith and Capote. He's next level good in Capote. Mm -hmm. He is so Especially good. considering that film already had yeah. Oscar runs. That, that's built, a, like, that's a, baked into it from the beginning. That is a total textbook, like, get this guy a supporting actor nomination that like, just never you're, clicks. You're already holding the event, so why not why not invest yeah. in him as well? You know? Yeah. Um, I think he's hilarious in crank two. 
I if, completely if, forgot that was if, him. Yeah, oh, I think <laughs> yeah. about that all the time. And then this is my big one. This one might seem weird to people, but this this is where I really remember first noticing him. I guess off of Capote. Um, have you seen Sunshine Cleaning? The oh, the Amy I, Adams Emily Blunt movie where they're sisters who do crime scene. That's decontamination. like a horrible. That's like a horrible blind spot of mine. Like it's that movie. Not, sounds right up my alley and i've never seen it it's it's a real late 2000s um uh sundance movie it's a real like the premise is incredible but they didn't really know what to do with it it's it's very cutesy and 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 kind of twee but he is if i remember correctly he's amy adams's love interest in that movie and it's just a really like tender and sensitive performance and i remember seeing that and being like just really struck by this guy and then he's great like his performance in tigerland he plays the guy who's originally platoon commander before colin takes over and he's the guy i think that you're speaking to what you wanted out of paxton um because his whole thing is that he he joins the army to be a hero and the second he gets in it he understands that he doesn't have whatever like raw masculine desire that he thought was what he wanted and he re and it takes basically an extended series of conversations with colin for him to realize that he doesn't want to be this guy he always told himself to be and i think it's a really moving arc of this What's his character's name again meet middle something like that mitten or milton or something like yeah. that um i think i think you're right that this is what i would have liked more of from the packs mitner yeah um because again, the the I don't know why he can't. I don't know why he couldn't stick it with the Paxton one the way that Clifton Collins. Because um, he burns it on Collins. The script kind of burns it on Collins. I think. Yeah, but it's not the same. It's not the same duality. That's the thing. Like the Collins one is that he's there for masculinity and he's there to like prove something of himself valiantly, and Paxton's there to like just experience like an essence of life that you cannot experience unless you enlist to do this. And I think like, they're not the same, like, because where uh, I'm just going to call him, I'm just going to call him Mit- Mitter. <laughs> it, it is, it is Mitter. Yeah. yeah. That's what, that's what I'm going to call him. Uh, Mitter is there. Mitter is there to like, to go to work, to be like, yeah. this is where I'm going to re chisel myself anew out of clay and I, I don't understand half of the scenes Paxton is like, I'm here to be a good soldier. And literally the other half of the scenes is like him dissenting with Boz. And it's like, you can't pick, you can't pick both. You got to pick one or the other during, like you're in boot camp, you know, mm-hmm. do, do you kind of understand what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. Like you can, you can learn to be the good soldier or you can dissent. But you can't really just be like, I'm going to go based off the discretion of what we happen to be doing today. And I because like it just doesn't apply to life. It doesn't apply to anything you do that might be challenging. Like you at some point, you got to like take the step forward. And I think his character, it would be a lot more meaningful if something similar to to Mitter happened where he was willing to put in that work and then it became by the end that he realized that he was ideologically unfit for what he was about to see what what he was yeah. about to come face to face with once he got there yeah. um because as it is like 
like <laughs> this is this is essentially what happens like physically to him like you they get to tigerland and then his body just seems to f- fall apart like mm-hmm. he can't he has no stamina he can't carry things w- w- the way the rest of the other soldiers are at one point they do this play acting thing where the wiggum platoon are americans and the boss colin farrell platoon play as vietnamese and the wiggum platoon comes in and just they they're kind of fine with everybody but with paxton they just beat the crap out of paxton um so like he's bloodied he he seems like he has some like internal organ damage he he can't march any longer like it some of it makes sense but some of it seems like it comes out of nowhere um and i think like the character arc as a whole as a whole just fails which is essentially what takes the movie from being like what could have been like a great film to what it is as like a film that both of us like that think is good but has like major major problems because when you have that when you have that faulty character arc for Paxton and then you get to the end of the film where the entire the entire arc of Boz is essentially relegated to being to ensuring the salvation of Paxton then then the conception of the film falls apart it does not make any sense any longer no for sure and i think the fact that it kind of burns what potential it might have on miter early on even if it gets us i think a very good clifton collins performance out of it um kind of is indicative of the fact that i think the script they, they went into this with a script that didn't really have a clear purpose sense of itself and they just shot the fuck out of it um one last thing i wanted to say this is completely unrelated but because i think we're winding down here i think um, we need to (laughs) it's just i was talking earlier about how between the 16 millimeter and the the color palette that this really does have the 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 desaturated colors this really does have the texture of i think documentary and home video of the era in a in Mm -hmm. a very accurate way when they do get to tigerland and it ramps up it starts slowly when they get into tigerland and it feels like it increases in every scene the they do like a light bleach bypass mm-hmm. on the film yeah. so that like what did look like this real you're in there naturalism all of a sudden like the blacks and the whites start exploding up the screen and everything else is almost completely desaturated and it looks like you're in hell in a weird way like it's such an it interesting nightmarish choice for the third act of this movie to completely untether itself from its like affected realism in a way that i think calls attention to the design nature of the realism that we were talking about earlier brilliant choice this movie looks fucking gorgeous libatique rules i have i have a couple things i want to get to and then i think we can like wrap up fully yeah because um, i basically just burned everything through. i want to say first first i just want to come back to a couple of things that you're talking about about vietnam movies like frankly not working and i think there is something about this that is not featured in Vietnam movies that take place during the war and dramatize the war in Vietnam that that I understand and I find very compelling. And I think what makes something like Taxi Driver a great Vietnam era film, because that that film is like the embodiment of this lost generation who is sent away at 18 and not able to develop into maturity in the actual like growing revolutionizing American landscape where, you know, sec- like they leave for war before they're adults 
And Mm -hmm. as, and in the time that they're away, there's a sexual revolution, there's racial dynamics at play. There's all this stuff happening on the home front that they do not get to develop during. And then they come back home and you're expecting that these men who were not able to become like acclimated American individuals of their age are, you you expect that they can just seamlessly slide right back into society when clearly that they can't. And I think that's something that Taxi Driver does great. And the other film... I was thinking of a lot oddly. And I think part of it is because of the cinematography is Frederick Wiseman's high school. Cause I cannot stop thinking about the end of Frederick Wiseman's high school. When the principal reads that letter from the Vietnam soldiers saying, if I die, the life insurance is going to go to the high school. Do not think of me as a person anymore. I am just a body doing a job. And it's this like terrible, horrifying, heartbreaking sentiment that's written in a letter from this un- unnamed soldier that that you get the idea that the teachers probably didn't even know that well to begin with he sends it to the school and the principal just goes on to be like and and i cannot think of a better way yeah it's presented school as, can raise a boy other than that as yeah. good god high school I, I i adore high school that is one of the most like chilling movies it is anyone and, has ever made and I, I can almost guarantee that Liebetik has studied those Wiseman uh, films. Too, oh, Liebetik clearly yeah. is in the the Wiseman. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just um, to, to touch on the Taxi Driver point you were making, the, I think the thing that Taxi Driver gets that most movies don't get that 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 is an interesting point is that so many of these movies are about like we come back from Vietnam and we become activists, we become woke, right? Like it. It lets us yeah, grow yeah. as people because we see these evils and we come back and we're like, no more. We're good now. And what a taxi driver gets is that, no, he's going to come back to America and he's a monster. And, and all he's he just sees sitting is everything there. that's wrong. Yeah. All, yeah. He's just sitting there waiting to, to do what he did in Vietnam again to mm-hmm. Americans. And it's the same thing is that when he does it, he's treated as a hero all <laughs> over again and you're right that is why i well, i know some people say rolling thunder on a similar tip i've never seen rolling thunder um another schrader screenplay but yeah that's why taxi driver is the best vietnam movie man we might have also to, we might have to transition this podcast into schrader sunday that's schrader point. sundays <laughs> yeah. i'm done it's marty mondays now um um can i say one more thing and yeah. i think there's something that we have to talk about um but we can do it briefly yeah um the last point i want to make is that when i'm watching this film i'm like clifton collins goes on to have the career that i would have expected him to have after watching his part in this film and while cole hauser is like goes completely the opposite direction (laughs) like i watched cole hauser in this i'm like man i want to see this guy lead like everything moving forward and it's just nope it's like a crater until you hit yellowstone and then he's like you know working his ass off in yellowstone but it is what it is no disrespect to Cole Hauser, an actor I quite like, um, but you also do have to understand that when we say Cole Hauser is in this movie, um, this is coming off of a run that is school ties, days to confuse, higher learning, goodwill hunting, pitch black. You know what all five of those movies I just mentioned have in common? Very People little who- Cole Hauser. No, people who aren't <laughs> Cole Hauser popping them. Yeah, yeah, that's like, true. He has had, at this point, Cole Hauser has had so many chances 
to be a movie star. And instead, it's Brendan Fraser, it's Damon, it's McConaughey, it's Affleck, it's Vin Diesel, it's Omar Epps, it's Michael Rappaport. Like, like if you're if you're Hollywood at this point, you're like, this dude has fumbled the bag for a straight decade now. And like, let's give him the Indie Spirit Award nomination, but he's not going to be a movie star. And I, 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 that's harsh, but like he'd had his chances. And this is like, you know, at this point, it makes more sense that you're like Clifton Collins, like goes on to have a great career, but he is the character actor's character actor. Yeah, like yeah. he doesn't have blood things. The, the two seconds last year where it looked like he might get an Oscar nomination though. <laughs> and I didn't even see that movie, but I was so happy just at the idea of which it. one was that again? Which, which one? Jockey. Okay. Okay. Yeah. He was getting bandied about because actor was looking kind of weak last year. I going did see into that. Tiff. Yeah, and um, he is great in it. Yeah, I'm sure he's right. great, and I need I still need to catch up with it. I mean, it just he's, barely got released. He's one of those. He's one of those like he shows up, and you're like, okay, cool. I don't. Have yeah, to you're in yeah. good hands, right? Yeah. That that's the dream for a character actor is that sense that like you're safe for the next five minutes. Um. Yeah, Cole Hauser. I'm glad Cole Hauser has had a second win with that show that I don't watch. He's um, just so like in he's this, a great actor. In this, he 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 like the intensity of like yeah. that he that exists within him in Tigerland, and and I watch it and I'm like, I just don't understand. I don't understand how he didn't become like like every like have. espionage thriller that came out for the next like six years well he is but that's the thing is he yeah. is he's just playing like cia functionary i know i know but i just don't get how movies. he's not playing like the guy like the operative that like leads the film you know what i mean yeah um oh he does have paparazzi after this that i guess is his big i mean but that's a huge bomb too so maybe it is that like after 10 years of him not popping in these indie movies um they finally well, he, give he, him a big leading role and it whiffs and they're like okay you're done buddy he also like, goes cuban in too fast too furious does he not does he not such, play a cuban no man? he is not playing a cuban in that movie he's playing i'm pretty a, sure he's playing a cuban man oh maybe movie. he is carnivore he's not doing an accent no he's playing an argentinian he's playing an argentinian he's not okay. doing a voice he's really good in too fast too furious man i'm sorry I am i'm not saying he's bad i'm just saying i remember i remember like i obviously i saw too fast too furious i was very young when i saw yeah. i had no idea who cole hauser was when I, when it came back around to me like understand like recognizing cole hauser and being like what <laughs> this is what they cast him in this <laughs> like this is who they went after to be the bad guy it really blew my mind when i came to that realization um, I do just want to briefly shout out his father, uh, Wings Hauser, uh, one of the great like exploitation and trash movie stars of the 80s and 90s. I think we need to go That's to all. Conspiracy Corner. Okay, Conspiracy. Yeah. Um, so noted in uh, Decent Ordinary, Ordinary Decent Criminal. Man, I, I can't remember anything about that movie already. It's been a week. It's out of my head completely. Yeah. That press reports made the discovery at the time of the film's release that Spacey had seen Farrell on stage yes. um, in England, in London or in Ireland. I can't remember which. It was in Dublin. It was, it was, but... a, it was a, I, I couldn't find the production, yeah. but it was just a local theater production in Dublin when Spacey was there, like doing like pre-pro or whatever. 
And essentially that's what got Farrell into Decent Ordinary Criminal, which again, it, you know, it's an Irish film, but an Irish film starring a lot of international actors, noted American actors, much bigger than um, anything he had been into up until that point, which is, you know, essentially one film and a a limited run on a television series. Um, Joel Schumacher directed Kevin Spacey in A Time to Kill, which I you're trying to get me in trouble. (laughs) You are. I'm not saying. I'm not saying. I'm not saying Joel Schumacher. I'm obviously not saying that Joel Schumacher was involved in whatever Kevin Spacey has been doing. I mean, but. I, I don't find it out of the ordinary to think that they could have had I, you, it doesn't make you a bad person to have a friendly no. relationship with a no, bad no, no, person, no, no. especially think... if you don't know what's going on. But I think it's possible that that Spacey introduced uh, Farrell to Schumacher, if it not is... personally, at least like brought the name up. Like, I like that kid. He was easy to work with. It is know? certainly possible. I just I don't want to speculate and I just don't want to like tar the reputation of Joel Schumacher by like implying that he had similar interests in Colin that Kevin Spacey did. But I don't think it's an accident that, you know, Colin Farrell's big break came on the back of, you know, the two most prominent gay men in Hollywood at the time. I will say in the, uh, in the TV three interview Mm -hmm. that I watched with Farrell, which again, which came out after he was done shooting Tigerland, but before Tigerland was released, he does, he does, they, they ask how he got cast in Tigerland. And he said that after making Ordinary Decent Criminal, his agent flew him out to LA mm-hmm. to meet agents from CAA. Yeah. And someone very quickly like took, was like basically like he's mine and signed him yeah. like immediately. Um, well, I, and I then, you know, seen, he had yeah. meetings for like hours and hours over like a three week period in which he met like all these producers and all these directors and ultimately got cast. I, I had um, seen some stuff that said that Spacey encouraged him to go to Hollywood. I would not be surprised if Spacey like, yeah. used some connections. But they and do but also, the oddly enough, in the same interview, they ask him what it's what it was like working with Kevin Spacey. And he deflects that question like quicker than I've ever seen anybody <laughs> deflect a question. He moves on immediately to like, I really like these two Scottish guys that were in the film. I really hit it off with them. And it's basically like Kevin Spacey. That was cool. But I really like these Scottish guys. I mean, when I when I hear these stories, this the thing that pops in my head is Spacey probably saw Farrell as, you know, fresh picking mm-hmm. and Schumacher probably saw Farrell as like a beautiful face as a muse to put I on screen as say. a muse yeah yeah because they worked together several more times uh but like like I said this sense that like you know he he is he is valued for his beauty and there's nothing wrong with that because it means he gets the chances I am Do uncomfortable you... with this line of dialogue <laughs> <laughs> okay you might you could cut this out if you want. um <laughs> It just feels inflammatory towards Joel Schumacher. I know, but it's like it shouldn't because but, but not, it's but clearly it, but it he feels, didn't. Yeah, he's he's also a director that clearly has like off the screen relationships with a lot of the actors that he works with, whether it be Tommy oh, yeah. Jones, Colin Farrell, you know, actors that he's keep for Sutherland, actors that he's worked with like multiple projects that clearly he has like brought into the project that he's developing. Um but I guess I guess we should just. I guess we he also just just, just shout out to Joel Schumacher, uh, a man who once claimed to have had sex between ten thousand and twenty thousand men, which fucking rules. Hell yeah, brother! Rest in peace. Can I? Can I? Uh, have you? Have, have? How far are you in the Schumacher filmography? I've seen about half of them. 
Yeah. You asked me what the best one is? Yeah, I guess I'll... Well, I, we're going to talk about it in a couple say, months. Yeah. It's yeah, fun. Yeah. No, I, maybe we... Let's hold off on the Schumacher, yeah. like, career talk until Veronica Guerin, maybe. Because okay. there's not a lot of Feral to talk about in that yeah. movie. Um, um, I, I kind of want to talk about St. Elmo's Fire when we get to that movie. Well, we can, we can get there later. Yeah. So I have a game. You have a game. Do you want to mm-hmm. go first? I can go first. Um, I... Uh, how long do you think your game is? It depends. It's 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 short. Um, I think yeah. let's go with my game first okay. because I'm I'm literally just gonna ask you yes or no questions. Okay, do that. And I, you, this might be the wrong game because with you specifically, because you more mm-hmm. than any person I've ever met it, it, are more likely to get these answers right than wrong. Okay. Well, now now <laughs> but, you've set me up for failure. So. Another another actor that's in this movie is Michael Shannon. Yes, he is. For and five seconds, he plays a very Michael Shannon character in this movie. Yeah. Uh, kind of just a crazed uh, military officer who's teaching them how to electrocute. To, he's teaching them how to torture the Viet Cong yeah. by using a car battery to electrocute them through the testicles. Is what Michael, he's teaching them. Yeah, Michael Shannon's one of those guys who has like a solid fifteen years of one scene performances mm-hmm. before anyone knows his name his thank first... you for segueing yeah. right into okay. my game i'm literally just gonna read off movie titles and i'm gonna ask okay. you if he was in this movie or not okay okay groundhog day yes i know this one that that's his first movie sling blade i think he is in sling blade he's not i've never blade. seen sling blade he's not in <laughs> sling blade okay no fargo he is not in fargo he's not in fargo pearl harbor he is in pearl harbor He's just watched Pearl Harbor. (laughs) He is in Pearl Harbor. Vanilla Sky. He is not in Vanilla Sky. He's in Vanilla Sky. He bullshit. (laughs) What's a great movie is Vanilla Sky. Eight Mile. He is in Eight Mile. He's the stepdad. He's in Eight Mile. That's his like first big performance. Mm -hmm. That's like the first one where people notice. I think that's the first one where he has like a substantial amount of stuff. Yeah. And like maybe like light Oscar buzz and stuff like that. Like. Yeah. Groundhog Day, he's essentially background with a speaking, yeah, yeah, yeah. with one line, you know. Yeah. Um, dude, where's my car? I could not fucking tell you. He's not on dude. So okay. <laughs> dude, where's my car? But Kangaroo Jack. Sure. He's in Kangaroo Jack. Okay, I've never seen Kangaroo I could Jack. Not, I could not tell you what the hell he is. I have Jack, never like seen Kangaroo Jack. I'm fascinated by that movie. Um, are we there yet? The Ice Cube movie. Yeah, that seems like something he'd be in. He's not in that. Oh, fuck. Um. But Bad Boys 2. Like, of course hey, he's in Bad Boys 2. He gets <laughs> shot in the ass at the beginning of Bad Boys 2. How dare you ask me that? <laughs> Bad Boys 4. It's happening. Bad Boys 4, baby. Let's fucking go. My my buddy and I in high school used to just say the we ride together, we, we die together all the bad time. For life. <laughs> Do you yeah. ever think about how Bad Boys 3 seems to be set in a world where everyone has seen Bad Boys 2? Because it's like... <laughs> Yeah, it it's yeah. I like I did not think about that. Everyone's so until... familiar with their like inner banter. Cool. I cannot kid you not. I I don't think I've wasted like a second of thought on that film even while oh, I, I was fucking watching love it. Like, Bad I Boys think 3. it was just like going I right into love my brain. Bad Boys Three. I but have you... 
I'm gonna I'm gonna tell this story really briefly. I will always forget Bad Boys Three because a bunch of us went to go see Bad Boys Three, and uh, my friend Mark, who like came dangerously close to calling Bad Boys Three his favorite movie of 2020, I swear to God, screamed <laughs> out loud in that theater when Reggie shows up in the opening scene of Bad Boys Three. <laughs> Like it is the most vocal reaction, like fucking audience endgame screaming, Avengers oh endgame God. audience reaction screaming. But for the dude from that one scene in Bad Boys 2 having a cameo in three. Anyway. You know what? This is the most embarrassing thing I've ever did to my sister, but I did that watching Babylon over Christmas break with both of my sisters in a pretty crowded theater. And the then Nicole Kid, nope, the Nicole Kidman monologue at AMC theaters. I just oh. lost it and started screaming. I was the only one. <laughs> Hell yeah, brother. <laughs> All right. I got a few more for you. Yeah. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. He is not in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. He's not. Walk the line. I believe I've never seen Walk the Line, but I do think he is in Walk the Line. He's not in Walk the Line. Okay. Never seen it. Little Little Miss Sunshine. No. He's not. Yeah. Um, Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call in New Orleans. Ah, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yes, because he works with Herzog on My Son, My Son, What Have You Done right around that time. He is. He is say yes. I haven't seen that movie since it came out. That movie's great. Clash of the Titans oh. in 2010. Mm, no. Nope. All right. Uh, Green Book. No. No. Amsterdam, <laughs> this most recent year. Uh, yeah, because I saw it. Unfortunately, I saw it in Amsterdam. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah you did you did pretty well because yeah, if you I mean, asked me these i would have had no idea I mean, like you, most you know what these. my favorite yeah. michael shannon one is is um peter bogdanovich's uh she's funny that way aka I, squirrels to the nuts i couldn't i that was yeah. too i thought that was too easy so like but I have, could you, not have you seen that, have like, you seen that the, movie yeah 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 he has an uncredited performance as a security guard mm -hmm. who is in like one setup and has three lines in that movie it's, it's so funny that that, that one that that role is listed as cameo on his wikipedia page yeah but none of the other like yeah. that one and one other role are listed as cameo and none of the other ones are listed. like amsterdam's not listed as a cameo well he's in have you did you see amsterdam train. yeah but he's only in it for like like two scenes right but, but that's most. like an important yeah. character and he's a big character in bullet train but it's the same thing. Like he's yeah. he's barely are, in Bullet Train. Like you could small... say Ryan Reynolds is a big character in Bullet Train. Yeah. No, like that's the entire cameo. narrative weighs that's on a cameo. Ryan Reynolds. No, no, no. I'm I'm gonna disagree with you. Okay. It's a cameo, and she's funny that way. There are small but important performances in the. Is that movies. Imogen Poots? She's funny that yes. way. Yes. Okay. Yeah. That and movie rules. Owen Wilson. Well, sorry. The 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 unreleased director's cut of that movie is a fucking masterpiece. The theatrical cut is kind of a disaster. I know they kind of like. It's, that's that's like a classic yeah. example of like horrible PR. Yeah, it's really. But also like, like yeah. having seen the director's cut, which hopefully will get released within the next couple of years. Um, it's a it's a masterpiece waiting to be discovered. All right, I have a game for you. All right, let's do it. This movie made $140,000 at the box office. <laughs> Sorry, I just wanted to reiterate that. That is so funny. I have here, I am on thenumbers.com, which is good box office mojo. And I have here their list of highest grossing by US dollars unadjusted, domestic box office. The highest grossing Vietnam War movies. Now, oh, this boy. is the list they gave me and I'm not changing anything. I am not say 
cutting a movie that is not a Vietnam movie that's on this list. Oh no. So I'd like you to guess the top five highest grossing Vietnam movies according oh to the numbers.com. Is it adjusted or is it unadjusted? Unadjusted. I'm gonna say Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump is number one. Yeah. Boy. Platoon. Platoon is number four. You have three left. If you get two wrong guesses, I'll start throwing out hints. Like there's no way like casualties of war was like casualties of war is not even nowhere on here's (laughs) that's what I'm saying. Here's a hint I'll give you. You have guessed the only two movies in the top five that are about US servicemen serving overseas in Vietnam. The post. The post is number eight. (laughs) I'm going for top five, right? Okay, you you you've guessed wrong. I'm gonna give you your years. Okay. Your remaining years are 2014, 1985, and 2007. And I will say this. You have guessed the two movies that are about actual service in the Vietnam War. Two of these movies are tangentially but notably related to Vietnam. Like, like Vietnam is important to their narratives. One of these movies, it is insane that it's on this list. I'm assuming the it's the one from 2014. That's, is the one that's insane? Yeah. Yeah, that's fucking insane that it's on this list. That's why we're doing I can't, this game. I can't remember. That's like why any, we're doing this game. We I can't doing remember this game. any movies for 2014. Yeah. That like, but but you have, you have about, 1985 yeah. and 2007. These aren't movies about men serving in Vietnam. These are movies about the fallout of the Vietnam War. Is 2007 Charlie Wilson's War? No, that's Afghanistan. I know, but it is it, but it yeah, is an Oscar general. nominee in a supporting category. But it probably they thought this was going to be a best picture player. This movie's not as good as I want it to be. It's a two-hander with two huge it's, movie stars. It's just it's it's just in a supporting category. It gets a supporting nomination. It's a supporting actress nomination. So it's not Frost Nixon, right? No. Yeah. But you're kind of in the right direction by guessing Frost Nixon. Uh two-hander with two huge a-list movie stars and this is like one of the guys there's like his one of his last big movies one of his last big movies yeah oh no and he works with this director a lot and the other guy has only worked with this director one time but worked with this director's brother a lot oh okay um this is giving me trouble is it the is it the scott brothers it is the scott brothers I'll give it to you. It's American Gangster. Oh no! <laughs> which is which is a movie about someone taking. How is that? A, that's not a two-hander. How yeah, Russell t- Crowe. Oh, oh, Russell Crowe and, and but that, that is a movie oh, about you know Frank Lucas smuggling, taking advantage yeah. of the war to smuggle heroin out of Vietnam. Boy, I would. Yeah. That so that's number man. five. I'm not gonna get this 1985 one. I don't think. Oh come on! It's okay. What's when you think of big blockbusters about Vietnam veterans, what do you think of? Rambo? It's, Ram- it's Rambo 2. It's Rambo 2. Oh, it's a, okay. So, yeah. Okay. Your 2014 one. Well, this the first one, the first one is called um, first, first, blood. Uh, first Blood, right? Yeah. yeah. So I thought you the second Rambo. one yeah, is called, the second one's called Rambo 2, right? It's called Rambo called First blood, 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 blood Part 2. That's so uh, weird. That's silly. Okay. The 2014 <laughs> film. Just tell me. Just tell this me. Movie, tell, me who, to tell me who directed it, and I, I might know. Brian Singer. Oh my god! What the fuck? Yo, is it X Men? 
first class <laughs> or no X-Men, it's x-men, X-Men uh, days, of future, days past, of future past a movie in which i believe at one point someone says vietnam is winding down or I something think, like that i think they're in i think mystique goes to a, like a vietnam base to doesn't rescue count i'm calling bullshit yeah. no it definitely doesn't that doesn't count at all <laughs> yeah, there's the top five. Isn't that a wild? I I love these like box office. Websites Wait, so go genre. go in the order. Go in the order of what they are. Number five, Platoon. Sorry, number five, American Gangster. Number four, Platoon. Number three, Rambo Two. Number two, X Men: Days of Future Past. And then Forrest Gump, obviously. Oh man, yeah. The, I I, I might have been able to guess the American gangster one if you started with the two directors thing and yeah like like one actor works with one director the other actor works with his brother because the the this being his last one with the brother really threw me off like because in my head it's like i was thinking of older actor it's not not his last it's not his last really movie it's like his last real a one of his last real a-list movies yeah he still makes a few more movies with ridley after this Anyway, with Tony, got Tony, he makes a few moves. Tony. Oh no, Denzel makes a few moves. Tony. I was oh, talking yeah. about Russell Crowe. Oh, this is like Russell Crowe's one of his last big A list movies. It's, he makes like Robin Hood and, and Body of Lies. Body of Lies. But those Body are all of Lies is like low key kind of good. I've never seen it, but uh, Leo would be a good person to discuss on this show. So yeah. I remember in Body of Lies, Leo has like when i was like 13 and saw it i was like he's got the best beard and the best hair ever that's what i want to look like like (laughs) that's all i remember about that movie and russell crowe russell crowe is the perfect like dc diplomat like he's oh he's like he's like coordinating these like covert ops missions with a bluetooth while he's at like his kid's birthday party like that's what his whole vibe is throughout the film he's like never in the office in langley he's just uh, exclusively working through bluetooth like in the supermarket (laughs) i've never seen it anyway those are the top five vietnam war movies uh connor you got any last thoughts on uh on tigerland only like i would never in a million years tell somebody to watch ordinary decent criminal i i I would give tigerland like a solid recommendation yeah no i'm 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 agreeing with you on that i i do think it is a kind of a messy movie but i'm i'm glad i finally saw it and i think it's very well photographed and interesting so yeah, that was the show What's this the week. Next, uh, American Outlaws. American Outlaws, a movie he is shooting when this movie comes out in bombs in which Colin Farrell plays Jesse James. I am excited I for the accent work there. I have never <laughs> seen this movie. All okay, right. so narratively, right before we right before we log off, this is a little game I'm playing because yes. I've seen Minority Report so many times and Perfect I know movie. Minority Report Minority Report is like his last wavering uh, with the Irish accent where it like comes in every once in a while. The, the accent really is not great in Minority Report. By the time he, by the time he's doing Miami Vice, it's gone. Like the Irish accent's gone. Daredevil, buddy. Yeah, but I'm Fucking saying, yeah. I'm saying by the time he's doing Miami Vice, like yes. it's fully gone. And yes. I, in my imagination, if what I'm proposing today is that for some reason we all know the narrative of Colin Farrell's career, that like it starts with Tigerland, he explodes into a huge American movie star. He like hits a rough point with drugs at Miami Vice and then has to reinvent himself within Bruges, which I think is like kind of the dominant narrative of his career, mm-hmm. which we all know. 
which I don't yeah. really understand why, considering he's not that kind of public figure. But regardless, if I'm if I'm thinking about this narrative, and I know by the time he gets to by the time he gets to Miami Vice, the accent work is like flawless. And when he's doing uh minority port, they have to like literally write in a narrative device to make the little bit of Irish in his voice make sense. The Heath I'm Ledger trying to figure traditional. out <laughs> Yeah. I'm trying to figure out like I'm gonna be keeping track of like how he does the american accent from film to film i'm going to try to pinpoint the exact moment that like he gets the american accent down i'm excited to do it well yeah. we'll be back here next week talking fucking cowboys let's do it a movie i've never heard anyone speak about ever i am excited i did not know it existed until i looked at colin farrell's filmography we will talk to you then take care fuck the english it's all been all back to life.